Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Another podcast, another day in this fabulous studio here at 10100 Santa Monica Boulevard. I love this building. It is huge. It is big. We are in a studio the size of Rhode Island with pictures of some kind of exotic animals on the wall and plants that don't look real. And I'm sitting across from somebody who I don't even know how this is possible, but I just met her probably three weeks ago at Phil Rosenthal's house. And I'm talking about Cindy Chupak. Thank you so much for coming. And I'm so grateful. Sometimes you ask somebody to do something who you don't really know. And it's not always easy to get them to do these podcasts because talking on these things is kind of annoying. And then you got to put up with me doing a 80-minute cold open that really makes them totally go into some kind of diabetic coma. But it doesn't matter. We're here. We're going to have a great time. I'm here with Cindy Shupak, and I'm excited because Phil does this thing every Sunday where he has a movie in his, I'll say his movie theater, because it's not a movie room. His movie theater is bigger in this podcast studio and he's got this huge screen and he gets all the movies that are in theaters and he does this thing where he plays a musical clip beforehand and sometimes he has directors there and about a month and a half ago I was with Adam McKay and he showed the big short and Adam took questions and it was unbelievable but enough about that I want to thank you guys so much for coming and listening to this podcast it makes me feel so happy that 
we do something that makes you want to listen and helps you. It helps me. It's cathartic for me, and I hopefully the guests have a good time. These guys are incredible, and I'm just glad that today I have the other side, the perspective of the non-penis variety <laughs> in this business, which is very exciting. I don't really like talking to the penises as much as I like talking to the other side. So I'm really good, and I'm, uh, she's about to walk out now, I think. Anyway. <laughs> I've heard worse. You've heard worse. That's right. <laughs> and called worse. That's right. So we're going to talk about that, too. So thank you all very much. And as you know, I look at my guests, and I think of what I'm going to say, and I never know what I'm going to say. And today, I'm kind of lying, because when I came down the elevator and I greeted Cindy, that's when something came to me. And what I want to talk about today is where I think she's such an inspiration is that for those of you who don't know, Cindy is a tremendous writer and I'm going to go over all of her credits later, but she's very well known for a lot of shows she's worked on that have been incredibly, incredibly successful. And I believe all of them have gone to syndication that I know of. We're talking about Coach. Everybody Loves Raymond, Sex in the City, and Modern Family. Those are four shows that she's worked on in order. I'm not saying she's not tried to do her own shows and maybe done pilots of her own shows, but I'm just saying that those are the last four television shows that she's worked on, okay? So just to put that in perspective, in hotel language, that's the Peninsula Hotel. That's the Four Seasons. That's the Ritz-Carlton. Those credits aren't the Motel 5. Now, you're probably wondering how somebody gets to work on five of the top 50 shows in the history of television. How does that happen? How does somebody make something like that happen? Well, how you do it, first thing you do, you do what Carol Liefer said in one of the podcasts when she asked Larry David and Jerry, why did you hire me? I mean, I haven't really done anything. Pretty young. All these people you didn't hire have done all these great shows and you hired me. And they paused and they looked at her and they said, because you're an easy hang. And chances are one of the reasons you stay and you work on great shows is that you don't create conflict on those shows. You don't treat people like shit. You don't say things to people that cut through them. You encourage people who you know probably might not be as talented as you, but you're trying to inspire them to get to the next level. You make the people who are in higher credits than you not feel like you're there to take their job, that you're a team-oriented person. Then what else you do probably is you create extraordinary content that blows people the fuck away. So when you put pen to paper or fingers to the keyboard, you finish double, triple, and a hundred times checking it, when you send it to people, they look at it and they say, oh my God, this is amazing. Or they might even say, ah, oh, we wrote something like this about a month or two ago, but the guy who wrote it's been here for five years, but this one's better than that one. That's how you move up. But the other way you move up 
which is very, very unique and what a lot of people don't talk about that often because it's scary, is this thing that Peter Engel had on a, I guess you'd call it a paperweight. That's the closest thing. And I'll never forget, I went to his house for the first time and I saw it on his counter. This is a guy who has done, I think, seven shows that went to syndication. A guy who made it when he was 53 years old. And the paperweight said, imagine what you could accomplish if you knew you would never fail. And a little-known story about Cindy is that she was working on Coach. She had a writing partner, which is something that a lot of shows will hire one pair of, I'll call them baby writers at the time, who are a pair, so they get double the production out of the same salary. And as they move up, they still pay them more, but they're still getting double. Just to give you an example, Steve Levitan and Christopher Lloyd are a writing partner. They write every other show now and run every other show because probably they don't necessarily see as eye to eye as they should. I don't think they're splitting a salary. They're not splitting a salary. No, they're not <laughs> like splitting a salary partners. like most writing partners are. But they might have in the beginning, but they weren't doing it in the beginning. And so the writers have to split that salary so they're making half the amount of money that the regular writers are making, sometimes less than that. And so, Cindy, another thing that we talk about a lot is relationships. Well, Cindy was working on Coach. Well, guess who was working on Coach, everybody? Phil Rosenthal. And Phil Rosenthal goes on to take a risk. While he's on Coach, he sort of probably has in his mind, or as he's getting off of Coach, or trying to get off of Coach, that he's going to create his own show. And he does with Ray Romano, Everybody Loves Raymond. But Cindy and her writing partner had another year left on Coach, but she came over to do the second year of Raymond, and Phil is a relationships guy. If you look at the executive producer lines on the Everybody Loves Raymond shows, there are so many people who were there for the eternity. There was Steve Scrovan. There was Tom Catavianco. I hope I pronounced that right. Catavianco. Catavianco. I'm not even going to try anymore. <laughs> I give up, Tom. I'm sorry. Take a photograph of me fucking up your name. <laughs> he walks around with a camera all the time. And there's so many people. Lou Schneider. The list goes on and on. And Cindy was with a writing partner on the show, and they were probably about to break up soon, but that doesn't make any difference because Phil is a loyal guy. And Phil would have Cindy on the show until she was in a wheelchair. But Cindy got the opportunity to write a script for Sex and the City. Now, what normally has to happen here when you are asked and commissioned to write a script for another show, you need to ask permission of the showrunner who will go to the network or the studio and say, don't worry about it, she's going to do this. A lot of people don't want their writers to do this because what happens is it's like if you're married and your husband says to you, hey, listen, I know that guy you liked in high school is at that reunion. Why don't you go there? He's asking you to go out with him. Why don't you go to dinner with him dancing? And you're taking a risk because you know that 
there might be some kind of a spark there. A lot of people don't take that risk. A lot of people don't allow people to do things like that. But Phil Rosenthal allowed Cindy to do that because of their relationship. But also, Cindy wanted to do that. She didn't have to do that. She knew that she probably was going to be set at Raymond and it was going well and it was on its way. But she took a risk and went ahead and asked him to do that. He said yes. And then she put pen to paper and guess what, everybody? They loved the script at Sex and the City. They loved it just as much as Cindy loved being a part of that show. And again, one thing led to another, and obviously Cindy was offered the chance to go over to Sex and the City. But what's interesting is when she was at Raymond, she was a co-executive producer. It's the second highest credit in television. As a co-executive producer, there's some pretty good money in television, even if it's shitty money. It's more money than 1% or 1% of 1% of all the people make in the world in a household. Sex and the City says, hey, we'd love to have you come over. I know you're doing 22 episodes, then 24, then 27 on Everybody Loves Raymond, and you're making more money than God. But why don't you come over here and do 13 episodes of Sex and the City as a creative consultant and make less money than you've made since you were working before Coach? And guess what Cindy said? I'm in. I'll go. I'll take that chance. And so she left a show that was going to syndication. Everybody loves Raymond. She was on a path of financial independence, being in rare territory where everybody loves Raymond. I think there's only 37 shows in the history of television that have gone 200 episodes, and Raymond is one of them. And she left that show to go to Sex and the City, and it proved to be one of the greatest decisions she ever made because, as they say in this world, respect outlasts cash and you got to go with your heart and what you want to do and how you want to do it and what lane you're going to take and what fulfills you and makes you happy and if you do that you're going to do great work you're going to be fulfilled and people are going to notice you and guess what everybody what show won five emmys in a row that's called modern family who called her to work on modern family i don't know steve levitan and Chris Lloyd, the guys who won five Emmys in a row. Why did they call her? Because they know she's a risk taker. They know she's a hard worker. They know she does extraordinary work. And they know she's an easy hang. And if you follow all of those things, everybody, guess what? I don't care whatever job you are in the world. You're going to have the kind of career that Cindy Shupak has. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! 
People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, it will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. All right, welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am giddy. I am happy. I am interviewing somebody who has such great energy. When I met her, I just had to hug her. It was awful. I was hugging her. I was hugging her tight. And I looked over, and then there was a guy there who was her husband, and there was a beautiful child there. And I said, okay. No, it's not going to happen tonight. Uh, <laughs> but no. maybe she'll come on my podcast. But maybe she'll come on my podcast. <laughs> the second choice is okay. So I'm going to give Cindy the proper introduction as I turn the shade of pink and red of one of her books. And here we go. Sit back and relax, everybody. This is the point in time where you fast forward to the good stuff. No, this is really good. Trust me. It's a long bio, but I'll try to cut it down as best I can. You can do. I sometimes put you on like 1.5 speed. You do? <laughs> That's fantastic. It's just a little, little faster through the. I love that. Open in the bio. I love that. I gotta start doing that for myself. <laughs> Two is a little fast. You start to sound like a chipmunk, which 1.5 is good. That's fantastic. <laughs> I never knew that nobody ever said that before. Thank you. We should just record one of these in 1.5 speed, and that would be. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, Cindy, see, people are laughing. She told me that people laughed on Mark Maron's and they weren't going to laugh here. Well, Mark Maron, the guy's a dark soul and funny. He, he, the guy twisted I mean, me into a balloon like animal. You the guy at the desk across the hall laughing at Mark Maron. I mean, it was just thunderous background laughter. Well, he kept shitting on me left and right. So that's what you get when you laugh at people. All right. Cindy Shupak has won three Golden Globe Awards and two Emmys for her work as a writer-producer on ABC's Modern Family and HBO's Sex and the City, penning several of their most legendary episodes, including Little Bo Bleep from Modern Family and Evolution, Attack of the Five Foot Ten Woman, Just Say Yes, Plus One is the Loneliest Number, I Love a Charade, and Splat from Sex in the City. All of those were individually nominated for Writers Guild and Emmy Awards. Cindy grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma and received a journalism degree from Northwestern University, then moved to New York City to work in advertising right out of college. She sold her first humorous essay to a woman's magazine in 1990, and the piece was spotted by a TV producer, Wendy Goldman, who encouraged her to pursue comedy writing, which she's been doing ever since. Her first screenplay, the adaptation of Nick Hornby's novel, How to Be Good, with the late, great Laura Siskin, produced for Miramax, made the blacklist for hottest unproduced screenplays of 2008. In the past year, she worked on the upcoming HBO comedy series Divorce, created by Sharon Horgan, and starring Sarah Jessica Parker, Relationships Everybody, and Thomas Hayden Church. Her other notable TV credits include her great work with Phil Rosenthal on Everybody Loves Raymond and his team, as well as Coach and the hour-long romantic comedy anthology series Cindy created for NBC, Love Bites, all eight episodes of which can now be viewed on Amazon. Cindy is also the author of the Between Boyfriends book, a collection of cautiously hopeful essays, a New York Times bestseller that has been translated into nine languages. Hopefully one of them's Hebrew. <laughs> In addition, she has written humorous essays about dating and relationships for publications including O, the Oprah magazine, where she had her own column called Live Your Best Love Life. God, I could use that. Glamour, where she had a column called Dating Dictionary, and the New York Times, where she has twice been published in their wildly popular Modern Love column. Her new book, a comic memoir about marriage called The Longest Date, Life as a Wife, <laughs> was released by Viking in January of 2014 and is now available in paperback. She's also attached to direct her first feature film called Whatever Makes You Happy, an ensemble comedy about mothers and adult sons, which is currently being financed by Netflix. Recently, she wrote a script for the upcoming FX comedy series Better Things, which stars and was created by Pamela Adlin and Louis C.K. In a few weeks, she'll start work as a co-executive producer on a new Showtime series, A Dark Comedic Hour, set in L.A. stand-up comedy scene of the 70s called I'm Dying Up Here, inspired by William Nodal Cedar's book of the same name, I hope I got that right, and executive produced by... Eh, a little-known guy named Jim Carrey. Unbelievable. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. I'm so happy and excited. Cindy Shupak. Hello. How are you? Are you awake? <laughs> I am. <laughs> I was saying during the cold opening. It was such In your the, mind? It was the 
the happiest version of my credits. Like there's a lot of struggle. I mean, I was like seven years on unknown shitty shows really that only my parents watched that. And my parents would write letters to the network when they got preempted. In fact, once I was on one called The Mommies. I'm sure you've heard of that, of, you know, in the mention of the hottest. I worked on just shows that were, because it seemed like in television in the beginning, there was room for shitty shows. Now there's really not much room for them. Not a lot of room for (laughs) shitty shows. But you could make a nice living for a while on shitty shows. And nobody meant for them to be shitty, but they sometimes were. So I was on this one, The Mommies, and it got... I was at the office one day and they said, there's this letter that got passed on from NBC Network about the cancellation of the show in Oklahoma. And it says it's written by the mommy of one of the mommies, writers, Miss Jean Chupac. And I was like, my parents, if you're going to try to save the shows I'm on, can you please not use the same last name I'm using? Anyway, there was a lot of that. Did you want to save the mommies? I, you know, I kind of felt like let's be Darwinian about it and let let things disappear if they might need to disappear. But you know, relationships at all those shows, you know, no matter what, there's such a small pool of writers that, um, like I met Flett and Ramsey, who went on to run Frasier for a while or beyond Frasier. Everybody kind of moves on and moves up and if you do a good job writing everything. And I was still, at the time, very excited just to be working on TV. So I really wasn't ungrateful in any way for any of those jobs. What are some other shitty shows you worked on? (laughs) Um, Let's see, what was my first one? Well, I worked on Baby Talk, which um, was like based on the movie Look Who's Talking, but it was Scott Baio. and, And then I worked on the mommies and I worked on uh, Dudley which was one version of a Dudley Moore show and he played piano he was supposed to be on a piano bar so that show was short-lived it was run by Susan Beavers but I was so excited to be working with Dudley Moore because I loved Arthur I could quote it to him like I could I didn't that's not advisable really (laughs) (laughs) I was just so excited to be on the set with Dudley Moore and I felt that way at every show there was something magical about just being on the lot and being able to work with people who've done legendary things and now you know how sometimes you see a guy in a movie and you fall in love with him in a movie or that he's just so great and so funny and so charming and then you meet them in person and they're like a complete opposite was Dudley Moore what was he like in person he was charming and an amazing piano player and really funny, but he did have trouble remembering his lines, and that got sometimes less funny as we went on <laughs> when you're waiting. Do you think it was because he wasn't prepared or he just had that issue with remembering the lines? I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure. Because there's certain actors that have problems with that, and this is something a lot of people don't know. A lot of actors use cue cards. Not a lot. But it happens where somebody's fantastic and you go on a set and you're like, wow, I can't believe they have cue cards for this person and they're okay with it. You would think it would be an embarrassing thing, but they're like, hey, if you want me to be great, this is how I'm going to be great. Uh-huh. It's not the best impression to make as an actor, no, especially it, at an audition you want to be able to. Which is worse, having your mom write into a show and use her name or using the cue cards? <laughs> having your mom write into okay, the show. just checking. Having uh, your mom writing the cue cards, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> See, you always twist it. That's good. (laughs) I have so many things to ask you because your journey is so unique. You think about the American dream. If you think of flatlands in the middle of nowhere, if you are from New York or L.A. or Miami or Dallas or 
and you think of the middle of nowhere, even if it is a major city, when you think Tulsa, Oklahoma, you think of the license plate, the state motto, Oklahoma's okay. Yeah. Which I always thought was so funny. I mean, the it's slogan, like, Oklahoma's okay. I like, mean, we're not going to overpromise. It's okay. <laughs> Don't be disappointed. It was, it was like, that's all we said. It was going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in the middle of nowhere. You're trying to aspire to be in a profession where you can't be okay, except if you're the mommies. Then maybe you can be okay. But going way back and growing up in Oklahoma, what you've experienced is what they call the American dream. But take us back and let us know what was happening there. What was your family life like? What happened back then that made you feel like you wanted to get in this business? Did you know right away what you wanted to do or was it something that happened? Because it says here that you ran into somebody who encouraged you, but that wasn't in Oklahoma. I remember a prevailing sense of my parents are going to be disappointed that I'm not going to turn into this great person they're thinking I'm going to turn into. They were very encouraging, even when there was little to go on. But I, um, I early on realized I liked writing. Really, as early as third grade, a teacher encouraged me about writing, and she called me a writer, and it meant a lot to me. And actually, I've kind of kept in touch with that teacher, and she just died recently, Virginia Davis, and she saved a lot of my writing. It was kind of incredible. And it's not like I look back and go, that was amazing, but I said that to her once, and she held it to her chest, and she goes, you don't understand, because it was third grade, and it was, you know, for a third grader, it was good. <laughs> so she passed away, and her family called you, and they said, we found your writing that our mom kept. Yeah, and it was some... That's incredible. Was, yeah, it was so sweet. It was also some cards I'd written letters over the time, some clippings, because I'd mentioned her a few times. But the point is, I, I, it made me feel special in the middle of that heartland that I was a writer. And um, I would go on vacations and try to write a poem. I was big into poems. Or She says I would say, I feel a poem coming on. <laughs> I was just so pretentious. But anyway, I would, you know, stop class and write a poem or something. So it wasn't like I, I don't think, I don't know if I was, you know, destined to be a writer, but I liked that label and it felt like it made me feel special. And I thought I wanted to be a writer and I always pursued it. And I wrote about a breakup, even in like 10th grade, you know, we had to write a, something personal. And I remember I wrote about a breakup that had just happened and it got passed around the class. And it felt like my first little taste of Oh, I can tell my side of the story because the poor guy was like in my class. His best friends are reading this, my version of our breakup. And it wasn't vindictive or anything. It was just my sad story. But I somehow got comfort being able to tell it. And I do remember I loved the Twilight Zone. I mean, my mom, my mom loved uh, Mary Tyler Moore and we watched Taxi and I grew up just loving shows. But I really liked the Twilight Zone. And I do remember thinking... I would like to write something like that because maybe because it was an anthology show, it was a little easier to imagine how somebody would step in and write one because they were almost like little short stories. I remember thinking that and I did convince, uh, I think my eighth grade class to let me have the Twilight Zone theme of a dance, which did not go as well as I hoped. <laughs> I had much bigger ideas of how good that was going to look, how we were all going to feel tiny or something. <laughs> <laughs> didn't really come off on our decorations budget. <laughs> but, but anyway, I, that was my... So set design was not your destiny. That was not my thing. Okay. <laughs> so I 
I went to Northwestern in the hope that I would become a journalist because I thought that would be a way to make a living as a writer. And then I was really not good at hard news. I didn't work for the newspaper. I couldn't be bothered to read the newspaper. I don't know why. I was, I was just not a great journalist, hard news journalist. And I didn't really figure out about writing first-person essay pieces until I graduated and moved to New York. So it was a little bit of a journey. I did get this one internship while I was, Northwestern would send you on a, like an internship. And the really good students got sent to like Cocoa Beach, Florida, and they'd cover NASA. And I got sent to Binghamton, New York, which was really. I know Binghamton, New York very well. That's <laughs> Broom County Arena is yes. there. Yeah. And there was a restaurant called Funzies across the street. <laughs> and I owned a restaurant in Binghamton. Oh my in gosh. that area. That was a bad move. <laughs> <laughs> worst money I ever lost. That was like writing on the mommies. <laughs> you know, my dad, he was an accountant and he, uh, he was gone a lot. He like worked really hard. And then he quit accounting when we were in high school, my sister and I, cause he wanted to spend more time with us, but we were kind of too old at that point. It always seemed so kind of tragic because we just weren't at that time wanting to hang out with my dad so much. So, but he had signed an agreement that he wouldn't do accounting or get his clients back. So he went on kind of a series of little adventures, which he looks at as failures. But I look at them as like, that's so cool that he wasn't just an accountant in Oklahoma. He bought like a, he worked at a radio station in Las Vegas for a while. He, he owned a little TV station in Hilo, Hawaii. And um, it was just a hilarious little. Now, were your stint. parents still together at that time? Yeah. My mom would follow him old-fashioned kind of a wife, apologetic for anything she felt she, you know, could. She was a really good painter and art student, but she was, she's mostly a, a wife. Tell me the qualities of your mom that you kept and you utilized, and tell me the qualities of your mom that you said, I'm never going to do this as long as I live. <laughs> That's a good question. And they're both still alive, my parents, and still together. Out of sort of an inertia, I think. But <laughs> <laughs> inertia? I would say. It's not like the greatest love story ever told, but but they're still together. Um, I remember, I, I often think I spent my childhood worrying they would divorce and my adulthood worrying they wouldn't, and they still are together. Um, but they have been great parents. And my mom, she, I would keep, she really had a creative a love for painting. She would do art projects with my sister and I. She let us paint murals on our walls and, you know, design them ourselves. I think mine was from a Starburst commercial or something, like a Starburst print ad. But uh, my sister had like a Peter Max thing that my mom did, and she did uh, painted each wall different colors, and she let us do art. And then she would really appreciate beauty. So when we would go somewhere with her, she would always be talking about the colors and the architecture. And I still, when I see something beautiful, want to you know, have my mom next to me and say, look at that. Um, so those things. But she definitely deferred to my dad in a way that I thought, I don't want to have that kind of marriage where I don't have an equal voice and where, uh, and where he's just supporting me. And I think maybe my mom could have supported herself, but she, you know, they just had a traditional marriage where he was the breadwinner and she was along for the ride and I really wanted to be an equal partner. A lot of times... Men will be with women who say the words, I just want to have an equal partnership with a man. So knowing that you've written two books on relationships, will you explain to me how it's possible to have an equal partnership with a man if the man's making more money 
and supporting the woman or vice versa, have an equal partnership with a man when the woman is making more money and the man is not really supporting anything or contributing. I sometimes think of it like a trivial pursuit. You know, if you have somebody who's good at three categories and you're good at three categories and then you make a pretty good team, remember that game of trivia? (laughs) I remember that game of trivia, but let's just take, for example, let's pretend that you weren't in the relationship you're in now and because I don't know anything about it and it's none of my business. But let's pretend you're going out with somebody and they're working as an assistant at a law firm or something like that, and they're making $33,000 a year, and you are making an ungodly sum of money doing television writing. Let's just pretend you are, and you're in a relationship, and you're living together. You're paying the rent. You're paying all the bills. You're paying all the food. You're doing everything. Could you let me know what that guy can do that's going to equal that? Well, I have a chapter about this in my new book, and I did say that, you know, I used to say the currency of happiness is also a currency. I mean, you can't divide it by money to have an equal voice. I think some women who don't work at all still have kind of an equal voice in their marriage. You bring food and shelter, okay? Let me explain something to you or anybody listening. That's from the beginning of time. Those are the two things that you need to survive. Yes. Food and shelter. Well, I think you've already thought about it more than anyone I've dated in this <laughs> position. So the first thing would be you need to be a man who does n- who never actually thinks about those things. But I reversed it. <laughs> I know, but if you I feel like it is challenging to your manhood and your sense of what a husband or partner is supposed to be if you think of it in terms of what the caveman's role was in a marriage, but it's true. I mean, sometimes I think, okay, I'm, I at least do I get to decide where we're going on vacation because I'm paying for the vacation. Sometimes I kind of resent the equal voice. It comes out a little bit in me with certain things, but for the most part, uh, when I, I had a kind of big life by the time I, I w- I didn't marry Ian until I had been on Sex in the City. I was. 40 when we married. Um, I had this kind of big life that I really loved. Partly, I would have to give credit to Sex in the City because it really made me realize that that time in your life, not just working on the show and how fabulous that was and the people, but it celebrated that time where you're still single as, instead of looking at it as a something you have to get through to get to the guy. It was like, this, these could be the best years, the greatest years of your life. And in fact, my mom never got to like buy her own place and decorate it and make a home that she loved just for herself. And I feel like that was kind of a great gift that I got that I, uh, you know, at the time I was lonely sometimes, but I, it was kind of great to figure out who I was and have my own place and just the pride of that. I mean, ever since I waitressed in high school and used my own tip money to like buy a sweater, I liked that feeling of being able to you know, buy something with my own money and not answer to anyone and earn my own way. And I still like that. I still like feeling like I'm not depending on someone or asking permission. I feel like one of your other guests said something about the idea of asking permission to spend. But I Yeah, so talk about the relationship that you were in when you had significant money and you were going out with somebody. Basically, I don't know if this is the right thing to say, But I would like to say that people would believe that most relationships between men and women, at least in this town, the man 
It's the guy who's expected to pay all the dinners, pay all the vacations, pay all the rent, pay all the food. And the woman's the one who's expected to love you. <laughs> well, wait a that second. Uh, well, nice wait a sometimes. second. Aren't I the one? Aren't I loving you too? Aren't I loving you too? Yes, you are. But I bring a deeper love to this relationship. I mean, I'm an old fashioned girl. I'm like, you know, well, maybe, maybe, maybe there's just like one time where we're going out for the shitty sushi dinner and I go to the bathroom and maybe I come back and the bill's paid and it's like, I just want to do something nice for $21.67. Maybe you might think about that. <laughs> oh, I'm old fashioned. I don't, I don't do that. That's not my thing. So for me, a lot of times the principle in my mind, it gets to me that this is how most women out in my area of the world are feeling like they want to feel safe. They want to be in a situation where they feel like they're taken care of. You were in the reverse situation. So I want to know how do you if get it's into tr- one of those. I want to know how you get into one of those <laughs> and how I can meet those people. No, I want to know <laughs> from the woman's perspective who's reverse. Because in Malibu, where I live, there's a lot of guys who live with very wealthy women and they get their rent paid and everything. And there's a lot of that happening there. Hmm. So I want to know how you handled that role and how it felt to you and what you liked about it and what you resented. Well, I I still struggle with it sometimes. I mean, sometimes that idea of like someone who's just going to take care of you and take you on vacation or whisk you away or worry about the kids' tuition more than I do would be nice. But I wanted to finish saying, I feel like I had this big life and I just wanted to find someone who wouldn't make it a smaller life. I wanted to find someone with whom I felt like it would just get bigger. And the man I married, Ian, he's just kind of a lot of different things. Like he was, he had tattoos, but he was a corporate lawyer, but then he quit to become a public defender and he had worked at The Hague and he, you know, loves bourbon and just like he's very outgoing. He could go to any Hollywood party and like hang out. And I met your husband, an amazing <laughs> guy. But again, and I don't want to get too deep into this because I don't want you to get upset and jump over the table and kill me. <laughs> but it could be argued if he were here with us, he would say, okay, well, my wife has been more successful and made more money in her lifetime at this point in her life than I have at this point in my life. I still got a lot of life left, Barry. Uh-huh. But at this point, if we're looking how it stands, that's how it is. But I wanted you to talk about the earlier thing, how you handled it, and now you have a beautiful family. Your daughter, Jesus, so beautiful, <laughs> incredible. And I like the vibe that I get from you guys. But there's got to be some pressures to it in your mind, and there's got to be things that you go through in your mind that maybe are unspoken. And I'm just curious, I want to find out if I have some similarities to you in how I feel about these things. Well, it does make me sympathetic, or I feel like I understand a little more the pressure that men traditionally have been under. I mean, I remember during Sex in the City feeling like, is this going to be intimidating to a man? And then feeling like, well, the right guy won't be intimidated. And it's not like I'm a millionaire or anything, but just... But I did feel I'm gonna worried stop about... You. I'm going to stop you right there, okay? <laughs> yes. Cindy. Uh-huh. You've made <laughs> millions of dollars in your life. My dad still talks about Rosenthal money. He's like, when are you going to make Rosenthal money? I'm okay. not making Rosenthal well, money. Well, Rosenthal money, that's a <laughs> different thing. 
what I'm saying is that a baby writer, a person who literally off the street on a show that goes 22 episodes is going to make $200,000, $250,000, okay? So when you're the co-executive producer, I'll smile on my face here and let's not cry <laughs> poverty here. Oh, uh, well, I don't, I didn't mean, I mean, I just, I live in the same place I bought myself in 97. I like, wish I, I did that. <laughs> I'd still be on Fleet Street or in New York City and I'd have much more money than I have now. And, and that was kind of a strategy, like keep your nuts small so that I didn't have to take jobs when I didn't want to. And um, okay, so as far as men, let's just get th this out there. Um, <laughs> Do you mind that we talk about this? Because these two books, by the way, no, are no, incredible. I'm looking, about, at, I'm looking at these, these in front of me. These are the relationships I talk about. I know you talk about business relationships. I am so worried to talk penises. about both. because I uh, <laughs> The penises. Because I have so many but things to similar. talk about with the relationships. It's a similar thought process. I feel like I want to take a job I love, even if it pays less. I remember one time telling an agent I had... Let's take the money out of it. Notice he, that an agent I had, <laughs> past tense, said, in other words, fired. <laughs> and when I said, let's take the money out of it, he looked at me like I said, let's take gravity out of it. <laughs> <laughs> like, how do we evaluate these things without the money? But that's how I felt about relationships, too. Like, I really was looking for a partner in crime and somebody I love to travel, someone who loved to travel. I mean, now somebody who's going to be a good co-parent with me, but even in dating, just like, you know, I'm just looking for what they bring to the table. And it wasn't to me about the money, maybe because I had that adversity that my mom was relying on that. That just wasn't the thing. I wasn't looking for people who were necessarily less successful, but it wasn't automatically attractive to me if someone was successful. So that's all I can say is that it's not... It's not the formula I was looking for. And there are times when I think, oh, this is a lot of pressure to, or, you know, I could see where that's nice to be swept away and taken care of, but I really love the work I do, so I don't feel like I'm forced to work. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Talk about the pressure, the personal pressure, not the professional pressure. When you are somebody who has always, like for me, from when I was 13 years old or 12, I never... Took a dime from my mom, nothing. 
They did struggle. I remember times I'd come to visit her in my 67 Camaro, and I'd drive there, and I'd have no gas. I'd be on fumes, and I'd get to meet her. And somehow, psychically, she knew, and I didn't know what I was going to do, sleep in my car or whatever, and I'm just hugging her, but I never asked her. And I'd hug her, and then she'd slip me a $20 bill in my hand, and she said, get a snack and some gas. But I was independent. I always want. So when I run into somebody who doesn't make a living and isn't willing to do other things to put money in their pocket on the off hours, it disturbs me. Somebody who says to me, well, I'm not going to take a step backward and drive Uber. I'm just not going to do it. Well, who the fuck is going to know that you're driving Uber? Why don't you drive Uber while you're waiting for your fucking auditions and put some money in your pocket and sit in your car and read the script a hundred times and make money at the same time or do something. I never understand why men or women have that sense of entitlement. Like, I've just got to make it with what I've set the making on. And if I can't make it here, I'm not going to make it anywhere. See, I was lucky enough not to have that at all because I didn't have this expectation which is my guide to life, kind of low expectations and then happily surprised. Oklahoma's okay. (laughs) Oklahoma's okay. Your career is okay. Your relationship is okay. So I I didn't come here thinking I deserve to be in TV or I'm funnier than other people or I'm better. I I operate with the constant sense of insecurity and self-doubt and then I, uh, and I fight that and I just try to you know, I I love writing and I like trying to prove myself and I like learning new things. And I um I used to advise people and I did the same, just take a job that doesn't use that part of your mind. If you want to be a writer, take a job that is doesn't use the creative side. That's just a day job to make money and then you can write, you know, on the side. But so I think being an Uber driver is something with, that's flexible if you're trying to be an actor and in addition, doing acting stuff is great because you just want to not have the panic in your eyes when you go to auditions. <laughs> like, if I don't get this, I don't have dinner and, or a career. What are you insecure about and what do you have self-doubt about? Well, I think why I did this podcast is when we were at Phil's, it was the Oscars, right? Phil had an Oscar party where he broadcast the Oscars on the big screen. And... uh Oh, it's so, so great. He always brings together such great people, and he has been doing movie nights forever, and um, I just kind of recently started going again, and it's so great. But he, um, I think Tom Caltabiano introduced me to you, and he said something like, Cindy was just, you know, Phil's, Phil was grooming Cindy, and then Cindy left to do sex in the city and she was the only person that ever left and I said yeah I still feel bad about that sometimes and you said why would you feel bad about it and you it really took me by surprise you were like the only person who ever said that to me I think (laughs) I mean I know it was a good move for me but I just want to explain it was a uh I just always am worried still about relationships and uh I mean, every time you go into a new job, because I'm not creating these shows necessarily, I look at myself as a great second in command. I've tried to create shows and with some limited success, but you know, eight episodes on Amazon mean it didn't get to syndication. <laughs> um, but so if I create a show that doesn't succeed, I always just feel like I'm not quite at the level of everyone else. 
even the Humanitas Awards, they asked me to be a trustee and everyone, it's like Ali Leroy, it's your whole roster of people you've had on this show. And um, the Humanitas Award is one of the greatest awards. And I first came in contact with it, believe it or not, from Louis Anderson, who is now, if you don't know everybody, playing Zach Galifianakis's mother in Baskets. And the reason I say Louis Anderson is because Louis Anderson created his own animated show called Life with Louis that won three Humanitas Awards in a row. And if you ever say to yourself as an artist, if you are an artist out there, just want to take a break and say something. If you're ever saying to yourself, is it going to happen? Does anybody want to hire me anymore? Will there ever be another role for me? I can assure you if Louis Anderson were sitting here, he'd tell you that no one would give him the fucking time of day as an actor. No one would give him the shot to book him in any role. He's so brilliant. And now you watch that show, and I tell you right now, he's going to get nominated for an Emmy. For sure. And he's incredible. But the point I'm trying to make is this. Just go with what you're saying because this town will give it to you. It'll take you down. It'll give you those situations. Yeah, all along your career, even no matter where where you are. So I was invited to be on the trustees of the Humanitas, and I'm looking at the list, and there are people who have created huge shows, Shonda Rhimes and, you know, empires of shows. And I feel like I've had a few shows I created that didn't stay on the air long, and I've worked on great shows under great people and just learned incredible amounts and won awards because I was on these shows that these other people created. But, you know, I just comparing myself to the some of these creators, I feel less than. And so I just always feel like I'm, you know, do I belong at the table? Some I feel like that a lot. Well, you do belong on the table. Well, this I, is a small table. There's just do, two seats. You do belong, me and him. belong at the <laughs> and table. I'm the guest. <laughs> you do. I say something sometimes and I think sometimes when I say it, it feels like a horrible thing to say because it's an unspoken thing. And here, this is one of the first times I've got to say it in front of a woman who I respect, who I admire, and who inspires me, and is successful, and has wrote books about relationships. This is my take, okay? Women are fighting two races. The first race is the biological race, okay? I need to have a child. Most women want to have a child. They want to have children. And in order to safely have children, even in these days and times, you want to have a child somewhere at least until you're around 40. So there's that race. Now, normally a woman doesn't want to have a child unless she's married. It's a traditional thing. I'm not saying there aren't women out there who won't have a child. One of my best friends in New York, Sherry, is having a child. She went to a, I don't know what you call it, a place where you get a donor who you don't know. She's having a child that way without a man yeah, in her your life. Yeah, first choice is to have a partner, whether if you're gay or straight, but to have a partner to just share in that with you. And if that doesn't pan out, I know a lot of women who have done it on their own and then either met someone later or done yeah. it on their own. So that's the first race. The second race is what age am I going to be when I walk down the street and guys stop turning around to look at me? Is that a race? I don't, I don't know if I'm in that race. <laughs> I haven't registered yet. <laughs> 
So that's not what I was worried about anyway. No, okay. you're not worried about that race. And by the way, you're you don't have to worry about that race. You're very beautiful. You don't have to worry about that. So, but the point being is that you're married. So do you mean before having children, women have to worry about that? Am I still going to be no? Or if they're after? single, for how long is it going to be? If they don't have the children, uh-huh. or even if they aspire to have them, how much longer is it going to be before I'm not attractive to men anymore? Like, look, Clint Eastwood is, God knows, 86. He can have his pants around his nipples, and he'll be going out with a 27-year-old girl. Yeah. Anna Nicole Smith was going out with a guy in a wheelchair. Okay? Uh-huh. You don't see many guys going out with girls in wheelchairs who are 90. Here's an interesting fact that somebody just told me, and I forget where they told me, and I hope it wasn't on the podcast. This is an amazing fact. Crazy. Okay. There are over, I think, 200 or 300 women who marry men on death row. Right. Yeah, okay. This is always... Do you know how many men marry women on death row? Zero. All right. So we see it's still a sexist society. <laughs> <laughs> or you don't know how bad it is out there for single women. Let's just say when that looks like a good option. <laughs> so are you, you saying those are the only two races for women? Or those those two competing races? No, I'm just saying they're in a race, the biological clock. Uh-huh. I'm talking personally. Yeah, okay. When it comes time for just to meet somebody, like, in other words, you want to have a partner. Yeah. Most people in life, if you listen to the radio, it seems to me like 97% of the songs on the radio have to do with love, being in love, being fucked over in love, trying to get love back. So let's just talk about trying to find somebody, a partner. So the race for a woman is like, okay, am I going to be able to have the kids? And how much longer am I going to be attractive? Because if I don't get a guy soon, I'm not going to be attractive and I'm not going to find anybody. <laughs> men it, don't feel that way. Men are not. I don't most think men every women. I, don't I didn't say every did, woman. I don't know if women felt that way until you just put such a fine point on it. <laughs> <laughs> I never used to think about that. I mean, that's like the thing you just can't think about. Just like death, you can't think about it. Because you got to hope that. It, when the time is right, love will be a little bigger than like, do I still look at my, you know, best or I don't know. That's a Beverly Hills housewife kind of problem. It's not like a my friends kind of problem. You're just doing other things. And plus, that's like very results oriented, which it's easy for me to say now that I'm older, like I'm 50 now. That You're 50? Yeah. <laughs> but it's easy to look back and say, oh my gosh, the... Are you, he's wow. still shocked. I'm, I'm flattered you're shocked, but everything was like material or whatever. Everything was not just material, but made me who I am. And I feel like all those relationships, I had some great relationships. I've had some great failed pilots. Like I've had some great experiences that weren't necessarily adding up or, you know, was on the wrong path, but it was, you know, a great path. Just like my dad doesn't see having that television station in Hilo, Hawaii. He sees that as one of his biggest financial failures. He lost a lot of money on that. But I think that's the most interesting thing about him. <laughs> so I guess I feel this a little bit the same about relationships. It is rough when you're in that biological thing. Be honest with me. Before you met your husband, you wanted to have a child. Yes or no? I... And you didn't want to have a child alone. 
yes or no? You know what? I was unclear about it. Really? I always imagined I would have children, but it wasn't like a driving thing. So I guess yes. But when I had to write an episode for Sex in the City, which often Michael Patrick King would assign, uh, what's something you're really uncomfortable talking about or thinking about? And then you're going to write that episode. So there was an episode where Brezhnikov admitted to to uh, Sarah Jessica. So it was he was telling her that he'd had a vasectomy and did she want kids? And we hadn't really declared for sure with the Carrie character if she wanted kids. And uh, there was a lot of discussion in the writer's room to me because I was writing that episode. Like, if you really wanted kids, you would have made it happen or you don't talk about it. Or I, you know, I see my nieces all the time. And I started to feel uh, like, I don't know. It, it just, it was more important to me. You know, you know why? I think there's <laughs> something interesting. <laughs> One time someone gave me a past lives reading, which um, it was over the phone. And I remember thinking, how's that going to work? As if like not over the phone was going to work. Just for our audience <laughs> to know, a past lives reading, if you don't know, normally psychics give these readings. And I always believe that everyone has a talent. And there's bad writers and there's great writers and there's great psychics, even if you don't believe in it, and there's bad psychics. But sometimes when you hit the right one, it's shocking. <laughs> yeah, every once in a while. I don't know what I really believe. But anyway, it was kind of a fun gift, this past lives reading. And I get her on the phone, and she tells me, it was when I was still single on Sex and the City, and she said, you haven't had a good relationship since ancient Greece. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I know I was in a slump, but wow. And then she said, you've had children, you've been a great mom, but you don't know how to be loved. And it kind of stuck with me. Like, yeah, I've had kids since ancient Greece. I've had kids. But I like, figure out the relationship part of it. So I was more determined to get in a good relationship more than have kids, get that first. And then subsequently, we had a lot of trouble having kids, which is a big part of my book, and finally adopted our little girl, which, of course, I wouldn't want any other child now. But, you know, it shouldn't have been a big surprise. It was harder at 40 to try to have a kid. But on the other hand, I'm really glad that's how things turned out sorry to be so glass half full but because I got a really great career going which a lot of women can't because they're juggling all these things at once and now I thought maybe after I had a kid I wasn't sure how I would juggle both but I've actually had more creative energy really since having her I think because I had you know invested about five years of trying and failing to get pregnant and it was an exhausting thing to be going through as a woman, and that is something that none Which of you Which can destroy a relationship, and if you talk about it briefly, if you think that you're absolved from going through when you, and can stay stable, you can, and you're writing on shows, and these drugs make you a crazy person. Yes, they do. And they ruin relationships. Yeah. In fact, I remember thinking at one point, I don't even know who the real me is, because I thought maybe the drugs... Maybe that's who I was, and the rest of the time, just my hormones keep me. I started to wonder, am I this crazy person normally, but I just keep it in check, or am I? It's, it really messes with you, and I would say not. That's something that when women are going through, even just trying to have a kid or even pregnancy, the hormones go crazy, or first, when you have a kid, you can have postpartum. Like, all those things to do while you're still having a career are things men don't have to deal with. And I know men deal with it emotionally in their own relationships, but it's different to be the one feeling responsible for it. So It's odd because this podcast, they never go where I think they're going to go. But I think these things are important and they relate to everything. So Is it interesting to men, though? Are you guys so bored back uh, there? 
Should we get back to the career stuff? We will. I, I want to just talk about something, uh, two, two things, and then we'll go get back I in the career. people in their cars <laughs> and then out of their cars and then back in their cars. Your podcast They're... takes several drives. <laughs> got to come back. Gotta get, I, I, I spent about two days in Lou's nighters just in your cold open. I was like, I think, Lou, I'm listening to yours, I think, someday, maybe next week. I'll be at the part where you say something. <laughs> oh my god don't worry you can all you listening you can listen to this on three speed uh to get past all this stuff two more personal things tell me the two feelings from the woman who is trying to have a child five years you try and it doesn't happen and tell me the feeling of the man and how he feels knowing that he could have a child with somebody who could have a child, but he can't with the person he chose to be with for the rest of his life. How does that stress, what happens to a relationship and how do you make it work and come out on top from that? That felt like, it felt like we were getting crash tested because Ian married, like most men marry, like he was having a lot of fun dating and then he was ready to marry when he wanted to have a kid. So I was there. <laughs> Maybe he would say he fell in love with me, but he was ready to have a kid and he wanted to have a kid right away. And he kind of had to live through that on the sidelines. And somehow we stayed on the same page or you just sort of had to slow down to the slowest person. So if I needed a break after we had an, another disaster, he would have to wait. And we took a lot of vacations as just like salved or, but it was somehow we stayed on the same page. And I do know a lot of couples don't. And I think it was, there was a point where he had joked in the beginning, you know, if it can't be your, if it's not going to be your DNA, then we don't want my messed up DNA in there. But then at a point when someone suggested egg donor and I asked him, he just lit up like I could see, oh, that was something he wanted, but I, but then that didn't work out for us either. And now we're just both so happy that we adopted, but we stayed on the same page somehow. And he was supportive and incredibly a partner in it and we were kind of bonded by the grief because nobody else knew what we were going through so it kind of bonded us in a way that it does in all couples yeah because that's the thing that i don't know it's so hard to survive because you are grieving you're grieving as a woman because again i'm not a woman but it could be argued that the plan for a woman in the whole big scheme of the world and the race is to reproduce. And the plan of the man is to help with the reproduction. Yeah. And then when it doesn't happen, personally, I would imagine there's that feeling of like, oh my God, we both failed. How do we come through this in a positive way? And so when you adopt, this is the last question I have on the personal side. I don't remember Warren Littlefield talking about any of this. <laughs> <laughs> you got through Warren Littlefield? I loved Warren Littlefield. All right. No, I mean, I'm me. I was talking a lot on that one. That was fascinating. Warren is an amazing man. When you're adopting a child, is that like a thing where it's almost, in a sense, it's like this horrible feeling because you're, you're seeing different children and different babies, and you have to choose one? Well, we adopted domestically, so we were in the delivery room when our baby was born oh. so we chose the birth mother but it was in no way settling it was in no way feeling like 
uh, you know, the thing is when you're just starting to try to have a baby, if someone tells you you may not be able to have a baby and you should move into other options, even though that probably makes sense and looking back, you think we should have looked into adoption early on, you have to go through those plan A, plan B to get yourself there emotionally sometimes. But uh, by the time we got to that, it seemed great to me that someone else was making a baby and I was just going <laughs> to be like the man at the birth that was like, oh, this must be what men feel like because I just stood there. It was amazing. And we we love this baby so much. So uh, Beautiful. It, it didn't feel like we failed. I mean, there was a period where I had to mourn, I guess, that but you go through the heartbreaks are more all along the way of, you know, false pregnancies or miscarriages or has anyone mentioned that word on this podcast before? <laughs> Probably not. I don't but think there's so. There's some heartbreaking things you go through on the way to it that women are going through all the time and then they're going to work and you have no idea what women are going through sometimes. It's a lot. Yeah. Well, thank you for going through that. All right. So you go to Northwestern. You decide to write this essay. You submit it to a woman's magazine. Which magazine was it? It was called New York Woman. New York Woman. A TV producer, Wendy Goldman. What did she call you up? This was the day for me that everything changed because I had taken a job just in the advertising, a little advertising place that was in White Plains, but I lived in the city and I was living with like three roommates above the old duplex when it was on Grove Street. And, um, there was this magazine, New York Woman, and Guess every... who performed at the duplex all the time? Did you? No. Who? Michael Patrick King. Oh, yeah. That whole street area was great. But I was living there. I, I read New York Woman every month, and every month there was a different back page essay that was a comic essay. And when I lived in New York, I started reading, like, David Sedaris, Meryl Marco, Marcel Clement, some great writers who were writing in first person and I just thought I'm gonna try this and I wrote this piece about New York and sent it in blind I like wrote it in a night or in a night sent it in the next morning and my boyfriend at the time said like don't be disappointed a lot of people try to write about New York and I just had this good feeling that it was the right sense of humor because I read this column all the time and I just felt a kinship with the voices in that column and I wrote it and then the editor called and said they were publishing it. And when that magazine came out, it was in print. I know everybody's all about the internet now, but there was something about having my work in print and being on the subway and seeing people with that magazine and knowing people were reading it all over. And that just made me so, I just felt like I was walking on air. I remember when the magazine came out and was on newsstands. And, and then shortly after the magazine called me and said, someone called you from Warner Brothers, this woman, Wendy Goldman, and she wants to talk to you. And I thought it was a joke because, first of all, I didn't understand 310 and 818 at all because <laughs> I grew up in Oklahoma. I was living in New York. So, and she didn't leave an area code. So I dialed 310 and it was the wrong number. And I just thought, this is just a joke. My whole career could have gone away because I dialed 310 <laughs> instead of 818. So it was, but finally I figured out the 818 and it was Wendy Goldman and Rick Kellard. And they were doing the show Room for Two with mm -hmm. Linda Lavin and. Yeah. Uh, Patricia Heaton, who did Everybody Loves Raymond. Relationship. And, yeah. And they said, have you ever thought about TV writing? And I hit, was with the guy at the time who had worked at Drexel Burnham, and then that went under, and he wanted to move to L.A., and I didn't really want to move, and then I thought, maybe. So I quickly wrote a sample that was terrible, like a designing woman spec, which I think they were probably disappointed to get because they thought they just found this writer in New York because that was my first published article, but I 
threw together a spec. I think I sent things like that were like poems. I can't, I'm so embarrassed to think about what I sent them, <laughs> but I didn't know what I was doing. And, um, but they really liked my like sort of short stories, like funny little stories and that piece that was very New York. And then from that same piece, an editor at GQ saw it and told me to think about writing more essays. And so I, it started my career, that one magazine article. It was like a flare that I sent up, not realizing that I was sending up a flare that found my career. And for me, my writing has always found the right place. Like it's always opened doors for me. And uh, I think early on, I had sort of a fear of connections and it's all nepotism. You have to, it's all who you know. And I kind of thought that was like a dirty word. Um, and now I realize it's like who you work with, who's seen your work and likes you and knows you. And that's not necessarily bad that you're getting hired because someone knows what you can do. Like Phil knew what we could do from coach and brought us over. So uh, anyway, that, that article started everything for me. Talk about your first screenplay and how that came about. Um, I, it took me a while to get my first, uh, well, I just want to clarify one other thing about what you said about Phil. When my writing partner and I, so, because he came into my life when I first moved to LA. So at that time, my article had been published. This woman had said, you should think about sitcom writing, but they're, they were just in the pilot stage, I think. And, um, I had a friend, Mark Katz, whose brother is Phil Rosenthal's his friend is Phil Rosenthal's brother. And so we went over to Phil Rosenthal's house and Phil was talking about Sushi Nozawa, I think. He described it in such detail and we had not any food. I think there was a misunderstanding. We thought we were having dinner there and Phil just thought we were talking about dinners or something. <laughs> so we were just listening to him describe it. But I remember he said, I don't know of anyone who's ever gotten hired off like this one you're not going to get hired off this one thing. You need to take a class. He was all about take a class. Just take a class. You need to. So I sent up, signed up for a UCLA sitcom writing class, and that the woman teaching it was Ellen Sandler, and she'd just broken up with her husband, who used to be a writing partner, and she asked me to write with her afterward. So for seven years, we wrote together, and we started on silly shows and then worked our way up. And when we got to Raymond, we were finally at the point where you know, in the beginning, it was a great collaboration. And people should know, I guess, who are listening that if you sign up with a writing partner, not only are you splitting your salary, but you're eventually going to move up and maybe run shows together. And we were at the point where whatever differences that were nice and complimentary as writers, do we have the same management style? And in addition, none of your writing samples are any use at that point because they're all written by both of you. So Phil, we talked to him and he was nice enough to agree on the second year at Raymond to let us each write a Raymond separately that would be a produced script to start our individual careers. And then I thought I need to write one more thing that would be representative of what I want to do. And I was going to write a spec Sex in the City, which means just, you know, write a sample one. I know you know, but your people at home might not. Um, and then I had a friend at Sex in the City, Jenny Bix, who said, maybe you should pitch ideas. And so I asked Phil if I could. And he agreed. So he was so generous on both accounts, which is why I was saying at that party, I still feel a little bad. But yeah, of course, it was the right move for me. And speaking of the money, it was the first time I'd been on a show that people had really heard of because Coach was in its like ninth season. But Raymond was just starting, was huge from the beginning, was just a great show. The nicest people on that staff you've ever worked with. Just nice hours, like a beautiful place to work. And um, 
And then when I was going to leave, I remember, because Les Moonves was running CPS, and they were offering me like a development deal on top of my deal. Which so, is huge. So it somehow was ending up to be about a million dollars that I was saying no to. <laughs> and I remember thinking, okay, I'm, I mean, I was like, I'm doing this. I'm doing this show that I believe in and I have so much to say about. It was, like nobody had even heard of Sex in the City. It was like this little cable show, but I thought, I have so much to say. Everything I'm living and talking to my friends about is this show. And I want to, I'd been writing on like family shows. And so I, I took it and I thought, oh my God, I just, I just friggin', I just turned down a million. I mean, suddenly I started to really panic. I didn't feel great. It wasn't like I turned down a million dollars. I was like, who the fuck do I think I am? Like that may <laughs> never happen again. I just walked away. Like I really started to have like a panic attack. Like what have I done? And are you allowed to say how much money you were making your first year on Sex in the City total? I can't remember, but it was probably like, you know, 300000 which is still a huge amount of money, I know, but, you know. So you turned down $700,000. <laughs> yeah, a lot. To go to what you love. And my dad, the accountant. <laughs> what? Are you, what? <laughs> I finally have a show I can say the name of that people know what it is. Yeah. It was, it, it was, it didn't feel, I would just warn if you do what I do, which is downward mobility or sometimes like uh, just taking a leap of faith. It doesn't always feel good just in the moment that you do it. You don't immediately know you did the right thing. <laughs> but some of the greatest stories on this podcast are ones of people who take a move downward to go upward. Yeah. In terms of salary, they don't look at money. They look at the creative and how they're fulfilled. That's so exciting. And so the movie, I really waited a long time to figure out the right movie assignment that I wanted to be the first film I wrote because your, your agent every once in a while would send you maybe a rewrite that someone might be interested in. Sex and the City had a lot of heat on it. So movies like that about women dating were coming my way. But I loved Nick Hornby. He wrote um, High Fidelity and Fever Pitch and About a Boy. I had loved his books forever. And when High Fidelity first came out, I read the book and I had my agent at the time, who was a good agent, and he knew Nick's agent in London. And I said, I'd love to make this into a TV show. So he, at this like old record store, still think it was a good idea, but he called his, because um, it was High Fidelity took place at like this used record store, which doesn't even exist anymore. But at the time, it seemed like a good idea. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, but I he got in touch with Nick's agent, and she said they're optioning that for a movie, and it became this great John Guzak movie. But I started a dialogue with Nick where we thought we maybe would try to create something together because he was big, but not as big as he is now. And uh, we just kind of kept in touch over the years. And then when this movie, How to Be Good, based on his book, was in kind of a state of there had been a draft that they were throwing out, he called me and said, would you want to throw your hat in the ring? Like, I've been thinking I'm, I'm going to trust people to do this, but I would maybe you could just throw your hat in the ring. So I I did, and I got the assignment. And it turned that again, even though it hasn't been produced. I'm really proud of that screenplay. It's got, it's opened a lot of doors for me in screenwriting, and it might get made this year. Old Parker is directing it. It kind of got resurfaced at Miramax. Um, but there was a period where Mike Nichols was thinking of directing it, and he brought Jul Julia Roberts was attached, and we had a reading where Mike Nichols did a reading with Buck Henry sitting next to me. Julia Roberts, John Hamm, 
it sounds like a dream come true, but one thing as a writer, the better your cast, the more exposed you feel because you feel like, well, now there is no one to blame. <laughs> this does not go well. <laughs> this is all on me if they can't make it work. And uh, it was just an amazing day. I remember like driving through the lot at Sony and I said, I'm here for the reading, uh, the how to be good reading. And uh, I just said, I'm the writer. I'm still so excited <laughs> that I was the writer. I mean, Bradley Whitford was there. It was an amazing cast just doing this reading of the script. And then I kept working with, uh, we didn't eventually, Mike Nichols couldn't like figure out one part of it and kind of dropped out after a while, but it was just an amazing experience. I mean, I don't regret in any way that that is, hasn't been made yet. I mean, I want it to be made, but, and I'm excited that it might be, but just some of these things that probably, I don't know if they seem like failures or successes when they're just in your credits, but everything that didn't turn out, there was something kind of great in the process. Got it. Tell me your greatest holy shit moment of your career where it's like there's a story that you can tell that no one would believe. Something that happened within some circumstance. It could have been within an episode. It could be in a party. It could have been in a writer's room. Something that nobody knows about that would blow us away and sort of be inspirational at the same time? Well, there's a couple that come to mind. One is I did a pilot with Elton John, and um, he was exec producing it. It was about his relationship with his manager. So it was about an aging, sorry, Elton, aging gay rock star and his longtime manager who had basically just given up his life to support this man. And we ended up making the manager a woman, and it was played by Kim Cattrall, and it was um, Anthony Stewart Head who played the aging rock star. But Elton was involved in it, and so she had like basically sacrificed her entire personal life. It was finally the end of his tour, this rock star, and he was having his farewell tour in the final city. They were out of cities, and then as this tribute is happening in this giant stadium, he he decides to like. Uh, I'm not going to give it up. And he goes back and forth. So you just know that forever this poor manager is going to be attached to this guy's side. And it was really about his entourage of people. So in order to prepare for this, my friend who got me involved in it is Michael Edelstein, who now runs NBC International, and I'm doing a pilot for him now. I was very reluctant because I didn't see how I was going to write this pilot or what this would be. And the bigger the person is, sometimes the more reluctant because I feel like I could possibly fail or disappoint this huge but he said, just come on the jet to Long Beach, or where it was a little bit further than Long Beach, but like Sacramento for the concert and uh, just meet him. <laughs> so I went on a private jet with Elton John and his entourage and then met him on there. And there was a whole meal, even though it was like 45 minutes. There was sushi, there was everything. His dog comes along. Sometimes on longer flights, they have to land so the dog could just go to the bathroom. <laughs> Because <laughs> I then ended up t traveling around with Elton John. <laughs> it was crazy. It was like, I can't believe. And at one point, he put out Peachtree Road and in his Las Vegas suite. And he played it for Michael and I. And he was singing along. And he really cared that we, I mean, here's the thing about Elton John. He is such a musician. Like, he loves that part of it. And so when we got to that concert hall, that first time I flew with him, we were the first ones there because the band is coming you know, by bus or something. <laughs> a nice bus, but not on the jet. And uh, we were there early, and Elton just sits at the piano in an empty stadium and starts playing. And he plays, like, Tiny Dancer and my favorite, Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's. And 
it's like he doesn't have to play the whole songs for the sound check, but he's just loving playing. He's so at home. And I couldn't believe we were sitting alone listening to him. And since then, I got to like be backstage when he would come on and come off. And I, when we traveled to France at one point, he had a house there and Nisa, just crazy things. I was at his wedding. And then when the whole thing, we made a pilot and he's in it. And it, it's, I'm still so proud of that pilot. Someday it will get shown somewhere. It's called Him and Us. Um, and he played kind of this rock star who was a contemporary of our fictional rock star. Oh, and the songs that we got to use in the pilot, Bernie Taupin had written the lyrics for. And Elton gave me like a folder of unused Bernie Taupin lyrics, which to me was just like the most amazing thing that I got to Incredible. go through them. And Incredible. oh, my God, the whole thing was like, I can't believe it was I often think it was like I was a make a wish kid, but I wasn't dying. <laughs> That's what it felt like. But then at the end of all that, it didn't go. The show didn't get on the air. I think because it was an aging gay rock star on ABC. Like, they really, they 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 weren't going to do it in the end, I don't think, at that time. And um, I remember I said to my husband, I don't know if we're still going to be friends with Elton John. And he goes, Cindy, we were never really friends with Elton John. <laughs> 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 was like he did we were for that moment <laughs> but he's got a lot of friends and a lot of co-workers and he's not forever gonna be i will not be the person <laughs> in the jet next to him anymore yeah so that was fun that's fantastic that's impossible to top i think that was probably it i was gonna say also my friend marquette's wrote comic speeches for president clinton and hillary and al gore and he invited me to help one time so i went to the old oval office I think he got Phil Rosenthal involved in doing this too at one point. But so we were writing joke, not the old Oval Office, the old executive office, or I forget what it's called, but some old office that's not the White House. And we were writing this speech. And then uh, Bill Clinton delivered the speech at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And he said some of my jokes. And it was of all the people I've written for, to have the president <laughs> saying you, something you wrote, it felt kind of crazy and also scary like i don't think i should be the person <laughs> did he kill with your joke he did <laughs> it was so joke about like the kind of bumper sticker that there was some joke about the bumper stickers that should be in the election and what would the president what would his bumper sticker say and we had one that was like my other car is air force one and then the one i wrote was if you can read this i've lost my motorcade <laughs> just wasn't that hilariously hilarious but you hear the president say it was amazing so that was a high point too i couldn't believe me a girl from oklahoma and i'm sitting in the white house correspondence center watching the president deliver my a line a girl from oklahoma <laughs> with a guy from little rock <laughs> six degrees of separation i'm going to mention a name say anything that comes to mind could be one word could be a sentence whatever louis ck genius just an incredible talent. He, I had the surprise of, I've never, I haven't met him. I've been a fan from afar. And when I decided to do the job of writing a script for Pam's show, which again was originally, it was like, they might be looking for a showrunner, but then it turned out they just need a couple of people to freelance a couple of scripts. That's very little money, but I was so excited to work with Pam on this show and I love her and I've known her. And Louie called me on my cell. This is probably not huge to you because you've worked with him, but to me, no one told me he was going to be calling and he just called and to talk to me about the show. And I was 
it was one of those like, oh my gosh, I'm on the phone with Louis C.K. And uh, everything he said sounded so intriguing that he didn't like a writer's room because you would think of something interesting to put in a script and a writer's room would then go back and figure out a reason it was in the script. And that's why in his script, in his show, things just happen and they're surprising. And, um, and he doesn't like story structure. He, and it, it all sounded good. And then when I tried to write that script, it was very hard to do. And that joke they made at the Emmys that think Orange is the New Black is now a comedy and Louis C.K. is officially jazz. <laughs> he is doing something that is hard to replicate. And it's hard for a writer like me just trained to try to do structure to just let go. But I ended up just writing scenes and then figuring out how to put them together. And it was a whole different kind of script than I'd written. And I loved it. But it was a struggle to do what he said to do. But that was why I wanted to take the gig to figure out how to write that way. Well, when somebody like that calls you, it really means something. Yes. Ray Romano delightful and funny and self-deprecating and he was in the room with us on everybody loves raymond sometimes when a star's in the room i mean he was legitimately a writer and wrote some episodes but he was so generous he was always just trying to make the script better and for everybody so not just his character but the whole script and story and i do remember on show nights there would be a blow to a scene and that's the last line of a scene and you want to make it as funny as it can be to go into the next scene. And that was sometimes where you could play around and try different lines. And we would all huddle and try to come up with something. And invariably, Ray would come up with it. And I always felt like we let him down because none of us were coming up with funnier things. But finally, someone told me, he's a comedian. It's his show. Uh, he would he would feel he wants to be that person. It wasn't like we were, he always was the funniest person. But I think he was less worried about his writers aren't good enough than just feeling great that he still was as funny as ever. And he was just so funny. Phil Rosenthal. Um, huge heart and just a lover of life and food and people and film. And he's just really shares it all with the, his friends. He's a, you know, friend forever he was really supportive with that take a class just has been supportive of me and then was so supportive to bring us on everybody loves raymond and so supportive to uh let me go somewhere else and is still embraces me as a friend and i uh i feel so lucky to have worked with phil i mean a lot of the beauty of not creating my own shows has been uh, working with just some incredible people. And that's my favorite way to get to know some of these people that I really respect is to be able to be in a writer's room and work with them. Michael Patrick King. Well, I know I use genius for Louis C.K. And I would like to say I don't use genius often, but I've used it twice now. <laughs> but I would say he's a genius. I had the most incredible experience working with Michael. We were on the set writing. We were, you know, all over New York. He made this writer's room the most comfortable, safe place. I'm going to say, I would like to say Phil's was also, like that was one of the first writer's rooms and coach, because that was Alan Kirschenbaum, really menschy guys who ran a writer's room where it was very safe. And even if you made gave a bad pitch, they would... Um, there was kind of a joke in the room, like, oh, that was a bad pitch, or oh, I got a bad pitch in my throat, or just, a, they would joke about it, but that was so respectful and great, because then you felt like it's not just hanging there, and you're embarrassed, and it's the last thing you said, and now you have to say something better. I mean, sometimes it's not like that. Michael's room, it was part 
group therapy. I mean, we would come in after bad dates and just cry about it. Sometimes there was probably a little too much estrogen for his taste, but he could figure out how to spin the most real, painful, interesting things and be patient enough to listen to our stories and know that there was going to be something in there that we were going to use or mine, even when they were intense. And uh, not everyone has time for that. Not every room works that way. But for me to work with those women that were in that room and Michael Patrick King, it was just some of the best times of my life. And then I was so proud and amazed that what we were doing kind of grabbed an audience. And then every once in a while, we'd be walking around New York or sitting in a restaurant working and we'd hear the table next to us just talking about it by accident. So it was an amazing time. And he is still, I think, just an incredible talent, just always thinking. You mentioned somebody who is near and dear to my heart, who is a great showrunner, Freddie Roman's son, who unfortunately took his own life, Alan Kirschenbaum. It was so much fun to be in a room with Alan Kirschenbaum. He, and he used to say between shows, you know, I'm a man without a table. Like he really loved to just have a table of writers. And that was just a tragic loss. And I know he's just fighting some demons of, you know, depression. And that is a hard thing to understand, I'm sure, unless you're in it. But I, he was an amazing larger than life, you know, Freddie Roman's son. Just Freddie Roman, one of the greatest old time comedians from the Friars Club in New York and the Catskills. And one of the things I remember about Alan Kirschbaum that I always loved, there was this writer's assistant in the writer's room who would, she was really into whale watches and things. She'd come in or we'd be arguing about an Argyle sweater and she'd tell us exactly what an Argyle sweater was, in fact. And we, you know, we were thinking of something else. And Alan would always go, true but dull <laughs> and you go next week on true but dull and it was just it made me laugh so hard i really miss him and his memorial service was just a who's who of hollywood of just amazing people whose lives he touched absolutely steve levitan i have to say when you interviewed steve levitan it was so funny to me because i know you just interviewed him yes now, for those of you out there, if someone has a writer's credit of a year on a show, unless it was the last year of a show, it's, something went down, something didn't work out. And that, um, I just didn't fit into that dinner party. And it was really took a lot of nerve to keep going every day and figure out, was I saying enough? Did I say too much? Did I, is it enough if my script is just really well written? Or, you know, it was, it's just, a, it was a group of guys that have worked together a long time and they're all amazing. And it was an honor to be there. And I got to win an Emmy for my year there. But it was a show that, um, it is a show that before I joined, I heard, you know, it's not an easy place for women. It was, I heard that and I thought, I'm going to be the one that they fall in love with. And, um, and Elaine Coe is there, and she's been there forever, and she's written great scripts. And, and Elaine Coe started as like a writer's assistant. Yeah. And now she's an executive producer. Yeah, and I think there is a weird thing when you're a female writer in a mostly male writer's room. You can be like the little sister, like I was that when I first started out, or sometimes you're the Wendy and the Lost Boys, or sometimes while you're single, you're, you know, I don't know, sexual tension. <laughs> but uh, I don't know what I was at that point. I just had a baby. I was really excited to prove myself that I came through everything and was working on that. And anyway, you, when you interviewed Steve Levitan, I noticed you said, what do you do if you have like 
a genius writer, just a genius, just the most amazing. And um, I'm sure you could have been talking about anyone. I was talking about you. <laughs> I don't know if he thinks I'm a genius writer or not, but I was really proud. Um, but anyway, I mean, I was really honored to be working on that show for a year. It, it's hard to be on a show where you're not sure you're fitting in. Well, how do you work on a show where one regime is running one show, one regime is running another, and you have to go back and forth? That's got to be difficult. But did you ever have the conversation with them and take them aside and say, look, uh, you know, it's three episodes in and, you know, I'm here for a while and I, I just don't feel like I'm hitting. Can you help me? Can you give me some guidelines on what I can do to navigate to be the best I can be for you? You never had that conversation. Well, actually, I after I lasted like six months... <laughs> That which was longer than other women had. I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> I made it into the club. And then you said, because then you're the kind of guy where people don't have to walk on eggshells, but I was walking on eggshells. And I kind of felt like a lot of writers there were walking on eggshells compared to other rooms I'd been in, where it really did kind of feel like, and they both have very different But I thought styles. you were walking on eggshells because it just goes from one to the other. And if you say something to one, you don't know if the other one is going to be upset because you said something to this one. I didn't think you were walking on eggshells because of one specifically. I thought you were walking on eggshells because each week you're going back and forth and you don't know, well, if I tell this guy he did a great job and I love this, or this guy uses my stuff more than another, is the other guy going to be upset? I thought it was being caught in the middle. It not was a being... little bit, but it was that way for everyone on staff. So even these guys who worked with them forever, there was that tension. So that's what I mean is that it did feel like kind of a place where everybody was a little bit walking on eggshells. And then I was a newer person, probably walking more loudly. And everybody else had sort of figured out where the eggshells were, <laughs> except for me, to take this metaphor to a horrible conclusion. But that said, I mean, the way, what they were doing, the, the show they put together, his metaphor about a boat and how to build it is helping me even now with the pilot I'm working on. He, he and Chris were both incredibly smart about story and they put together an amazing show that was so fun to write and those actors were so amazing and, and the other writers in the room were really funny people and um I think just I know when Steve told the story of Larry Sanders and you know he doesn't change his mind once he feels some way I think it's kind of can be like that for a writer and I I feel like at a certain point I just wasn't quite fitting in with either like saying too much or what for whatever reason uh just kind of get my footing again. And then the more I tried, like you say, taking this, taking someone aside, I, when I was, I listened to that. And then I looked at this old email that I had sent, uh, Steve, when I was on the bubble and it sounded so good at first, the first two paragraphs were like, I get it. I know how rooms are. It's like a dinner party, da, da, da. If I would have just said, so that's fine. But then it goes on to say, but if I could be a little more what a, and then I just want to go back to my old self and go, don't say like you can be less of yourself or different or like you could freelance from afar or something like, don't just, you know, whatever. If it isn't the perfect match, it isn't the perfect match. And, um, and I'm still really grateful for that time. But anyway, if there's any one regret I have in my whole career, it might be that uh, kind of begging to still be part of something and saying I could be quieter. Last one, Sarah Jessica Parker. Just an inspiration on the stage and for the crew and for the writers and the perfect kind of muse you want to write for. She was she knows about politics, sports, fashion. There's nothing she's not really well read and 
well, you know, she's just got incredible, an incredible breadth of interests and deep, deep knowledge and is so good at what she does and always made it her own. And it's the kind of cast, that whole cast, and so many of these casts I've worked with, the Modern Family cast, the Raymond cast, just fun to write for because you love these people. And I feel like if you love an actor, you can really write great stuff for them. And sometimes when you don't, you can, I feel like you can feel it in the, in the writing and you're not giving them as much to do. Your proudest moment in show business. I guess that first year I joined Sex and the City and it felt kind of like we weren't sure if anyone was watching or knew what it was. And we went to the Golden Globes. We were nominated. And the Golden Globes, as you know, is just a who's who of, I mean, I've gotten to go to the Emmys and that's an amazing gathering of people. But the Golden Globes is a film and TV in a little room and you're all sitting around tables. And so you just look down. So we won. And uh, we all were up on stage and then we walked, you kind of walk this walk down the hall and through the kitchen to the press room. And on that little walk, I mean, it was all the actors and our writers team. And we just all huddled in this big hug and just screamed like we couldn't believe we won and that people were watching because we were having so much fun. It felt so creatively fulfilling making this show. And then the fact that it was getting recognized and People were watching it. It was the first taste of that. And then it went on to win several other things. But that first taste that it was hitting and having a group, a team that we're all getting to experience together was, was amazing. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to bigger heights. I guess when my pilot, my show, Love Bites, it was in the middle of all the baby stuff. I mean, I it was crazy. We had had a setback in our baby quest, and then NBC, do you remember they had Jay Leno on at 10, and they cleared out their entire drama lineup? Mm-hmm. And then when they decided that wasn't working, they needed an entire drama lineup. So this pilot I had written two years earlier called Love Bites with Joanna Alfano. Joanna Alfano was a unique kind of case because she was an executive at NBC and she also did creative stuff. It was amazing. It was a kind of a, your older people will remember Love American style, but like an anthology. I had for so long thinking, why can't you do a romantic comedy anthology show in some way? And I just love the idea, just because of Twilight Zone, probably, of like telling a little separate story. And then I had this idea to tell three stories in an hour, and maybe they would interconnect. And it was pretty ambitious. And maybe the stars wouldn't even repeat. And so you could get great people each time. And now I think if if I had created that for cable and as a limited series, it would have been doable. But you know how many voices are in network TV. So it was a big thing to take on. So when I first wrote the pilot, though, it's still one of my favorite things I ever wrote. I think I have some really great stories in there. And um, it just went away. And then two years later, because Jay Leno moved, someone was going through their old development and they didn't have a romantic comedy. And they said, maybe this is one of the hours. And they called me and the meeting was, we want to make this. And right away, I mean, I was on vacation with my husband. He was snowboarding. And it was like time-lapse photography. He would leave and all of, his com- all of his gear, leave for the day, come back. And I was just set up like an office at our hotel. And I was uh, making, call- getting like a casting person in studio. The whole thing, like it's so fun when you get a pilot picked up that you're going to get to film it because suddenly everything's real and you get to hire a zillion people. And so um, 
we got the best cast you could even imagine. Like there was one little section of it that was about, uh, it was about your celebrity exemption. And we had Greg Grunberg playing uh, a guy whose celebrity exemption, he was married to Pam Adlon in the pilot. And uh, again, another relationship with <laughs> Pam Adlon, Louis C.K., the show you're working on. So. And his, his uh, celebrity exemption was Jennifer, Jennifer Love Hewitt, and he ends up on a flight with her. And we had to cast the friend of Greg Grunberg was um, Craig Robinson. I mean, it was the most amazing cast. Just that was one little section. We had great people at every section, and um, and it was so it was it was so fun on set. I had a director I loved. Just the pilot. We had Becky Newton in it. Becky Newton is now working with Bill Bellamy on the Winning Ugly pilot, I believe. So that's awesome. So I got to make this pilot. I couldn't have been prouder of. I couldn't believe how well how left alone it really was, and it and the director and I saw completely eye to eye. And then when it got picked up, um, and I did it with Working Title, which was a huge thrill for me because they do great movies. Um, at the NBC Upfronts, they decided to show that whole section. I know Steve Levitan talked about showing the whole pilot. It was great. Well, they showed this whole section of the celebrity exemption, and I almost couldn't breathe until the first laugh. I mean, suddenly. And then at the parties after the Upfront, people were saying, now you just have to keep the show going. And it was kind of joking, but there was a little bit of a, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Even the working title guys are like, how are you going to keep this going? And uh, I just couldn't, uh, there was, it was a really difficult time in my life. I think everything from that baby stuff that we talked about that hopefully you will cut down to just two minutes um, was all coming to bear on me. And my husband was still wanting to adopt. And he would, in the back of my folder for my pilot, like there was all the story ideas and the casting. And then there was a section, birth mothers, like, and if someone called, I had to stop what I'm doing, go in the office and interview or have them interview me, call a birth mother. I heard you're having a baby. Do you have dogs or, you know, whatever. <laughs> I was trying to do that at the same time. And um, and then Becky Newton, she was playing the last virgin in Virginia. There was one storyline that was like two girls who were the last single girls in their group. And one was kind of a slut and one was a virgin and Franny and Annie. Becky was so good in it. She tested through the roof. She was the last virgin in Virginia, and right before the upfronts, I don't know if I should admit this because I think I only acted like I heard afterward, but she did tell me, and she was crying. She came to my hotel room and said, I'm pregnant. And I thought, <laughs> I, just, I actually was in denial that that could possibly affect things. <laughs> She said, you can do it without me. And I was like, I don't want to do it without you. No, we'll make it work. I mean, on Sex and the City, we worked around her pregnancy wardrobe. You know, Patty Heaton was pregnant the whole time on everybody. Else, right? and just put her behind a, you know, a laundry basket. So I thought, that's going to be fine. And um, and then we ended up having to rework that story. To We ended up making her a surrogate for her sister and writing that in. So that whole story dropped out, and we had to replace that. And meanwhile, we're trying to pitch basically three new pilots every week almost, and get the network to sign off. And uh, it was just too much. I couldn't do it. And I kind of like had a bit of a, just had to throw in the towel and just be from afar and let other people run it because just sort of everything crumbled. And I felt so sad that this opportunity had come and I just didn't have it together enough to see it through because it felt like this incredible opportunity, you know, that I could, uh, have a show I loved that was doing everything I loved and I had so much creative freedom and uh, and I just didn't have the strength or whatever at that time, which I don't think is something many men deal with, but I couldn't stick with it. 
and um, I regret that. Have I? I haven't bounced back. I mean, I have bounced back in that I got Modern Family after that. I've I've been doing stuff I love, and I've been writing. I'm so excited to write on this new show, and it did kind of make me realize. I guess my realization was that uh, I can be just a great second in command. I don't have to. I will probably keep trying to develop shows, probably for cable because it's less of a crazy stress thing, but having the show on your shoulders where every decision you make is, you can't leave it at work at all. You've got it all the time. The cast is going to read that rewritten script the next morning. The network's going to ask you about it. The uh, is very different than being like second in command and helping and just being a great help. And uh, I realized like, maybe that's okay if I, now I have a kid and if I just want to do that and work on shows I love and if I don't leave my mark as someone who created a great show, but I just got to participate in a lot of great shows and, and I'm, do only things I'm really proud of and I'm still really proud of those eight episodes that we ended up, you know, that that I did some of. <laughs> um, that was kind of how I bounced back, I guess. Awesome. Last question. What advice do you have for the young writer who is somewhere in a state where it's okay in the middle of nowhere or somewhere out in the world to get to the place and have the kind of career that you have and also what advice you've been around a lot of actors and actresses what advice do you have for them as well to get to the points of some of the leads and some of the shows that you've worked in for writers and for actors maybe i would say the storytelling community is just bursting. I know everyone else talks about the internet. You can make your own thing. You can put it on Vine, whatever. I'm old school. Tell a story in front of an audience. The storytelling scene, and I met my husband through The Moth. Uh, through The Moth, for those of you who don't know, The Moth is an amazing storytelling platform that started, I think, in New York City, I believe, and is one of the top podcasts in the world, and also they've developed television shows around it as well. It's amazing. But you know, it all comes down to the story. Uh, it's for me, it's where are you going to get those good stories? And you can put a film up on the internet, but is there a story to it? Like, what is what? Why am I watching? What are you talking about? <laughs> why did you make this? What did you want to express? So, if you go to storytelling shows and just listen, you will know what grabs you and why, and what doesn't grab you and why. And it's kind of a great primer. And when I've written books that are collections of my essays. I often go out and tell them and perfect them on the storytelling circuit. And sometimes I'll sign up for a show and write something new just to do it. And I learn a lot from the other storytellers. And if you go to them, you can, you know, eventually try to tell one yourself. And it's a great way to test things out on an audience and to just sharpen your storytelling skills. And I feel like then potentially doing like what I did, trying to publish a piece in Modern Love or a piece in LA Affairs or um, just get your voice out there in whatever way, a, f a bit of a flair, but sharpen your storytelling skills. And, you know, sometimes a modern love is a perfect little microcosm of what could be a book or could be a TV show. So to start with one thing that is going to represent you and then keep doing it and keep doing it. But I would say that's a good thing for writers to do. And for actors, just know that in an audition, if someone like me says, that was great, that was so great, that was, ama that was amazing, probably it was not so great because <laughs> I tend to be really abusive when someone isn't so good because I don't know what to say exactly. 
and you're just saying something to get them out the room. And then sometimes people are great and your mind is already off to, wow, maybe he could be in that next thing we did or, uh, or he's not right for this. But and that happened with David Eigenberg, kind of famously on Sex and the City. He came in as a potential date for Charlotte and his voice was so distinctive and he was so interesting that immediately the writers were thinking, oh, maybe he could be a relationship for Cynthia later. But he probably left that audition thinking, I just failed that because nobody called him and told him right away what we were planning. So just know each audition, you know, you're auditioning for the part, but you're also possibly making an impression that's going to last. So you want to do great work with that part and then just judge yourself when you leave. Try to imagine, how do you think you did? Because it's almost like playing golf against yourself. You got to be able to know, I think I did well, or I think I could do better or just keep doing it. And as an actor, as a writer, when I'm in that room, while somebody's doing my lines, particularly, which a lot of writers don't talk about their script and their lines, but I think you wrote the script. I don't know. I think it's okay to talk about things as your script, even when you're on a show. Um, you're ready to kill yourself while people are not making it work. You're thinking this is the worst script. You're not thinking this is the worst actor. You're thinking this script does not work at all. And then someone comes in and makes it work and it's funny and it's what you hoped it would be and more and you're so relieved and that's um that's the magic of what you're looking for well cindy shoepack you were the magic what i was looking for today <laughs> thank you so much and i'm afraid to tell you how great you were because you're gonna walk out of here saying oh, i guess it wasn't so great uh, it really sucked he told me it was fantastic so i'm trying to be a little low-key here and just tell you you were very good we'll let you know in a few days how it all worked out and um we'll call you uh, uh, no, it was so fantastic. Thank I'm so honored me. that you came on and you did your research. And I'm sorry that I bored you and talked about kids stuff and <laughs> no. family and women and men and their problems. But, no, you know, I just want to tell everybody who, before I go, I'm going to give these plugs. Please buy these books, The Longest Date, Life as a Wife, and also The if Between. you just didn't get enough of that baby stuff. <laughs> and the between... Battle of the Sexes. And may, I know there's two of you out there, two women listening who are like, that I need to know so some more. That is so unfair. <laughs> and the Between Boyfriends book, please check these out. They're fantastic. I have them in my hot little hands. You're going to really, really enjoy them. Cindy, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. As promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Terry Jackson from Bellevue, Iowa. Congratulations, Terry. Also, I figure... 
I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Lands on Pets 19, December 19, 2015. Undeniable five stars. Pets 19 wrote, When Barry started the Industry Standard Podcast, I was immediately fascinated by the show. The lessons taught by Barry and his guests are applicable to anybody. You don't have to be a casting director or producer to find values in these interviews. Industry Standard helps serve as an inspiration to pursue a career in a field that I am passionate about. Well, Pets19, thank you so much. Congratulations. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain it's never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.